Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Well, we're sticking with our summer theme, extreme heat, heat waves, melting Alaska, and today, the strain on the power grid. And stick around after the interview for some good news. Cynthia Duraco is back with the third installment of Science for the Win. What are your summer essentials? A good book? Popsicles? Sunglasses? What about electricity? If you're like me, you've spent the summer giving thanks for air-conditioned spaces. And if you're really like me, you've never given much thought to the electrical system that powers your AC. Because why would you? Regional power grids bring electricity from the power plant somewhere nearby to our outlets. And you probably never think about any of this until the power goes out. Power outages occur more often during extreme weather events, like hurricanes, wildfire, and heat waves, each of which is happening more and more because of climate change, and often when people need power the most. Refrigerators and air conditioners don't just make life comfortable, they keep you safe. And the risk of power outages keeps increasing. It'd be nice to stay blissfully ignorant about power and just trust that there'll be electricity when we need it. But is that really wise? To figure out how power grids are planning ahead for increased demands and complications due to climate change, I spoke with my colleague, Julie McNamara, a senior energy analyst here at the Union of Concerned Scientists. She explains the challenges that grid operators face in meeting our power needs and what methods we currently have for doing so. And spoiler alert, they're pretty inefficient. But our conversation goes to hopeful places too, and I can guarantee that you'll be the star of your next dinner party with your new understanding of grid operation and electricity sourcing. Julie, thanks for joining me on the podcast. I'm so glad to be here. So I'm not sure how often the energy grid comes up in casual conversations with your friends, but I tell you that in my life, the number is zero. It's the poster child of out of sight, out of mind, but it's actually tremendously important. So can you describe the electricity grid in a way that the average person can kind of get a picture of how it works? Sure. So the whole goal of the power grid is to get electricity from where it's generated to the people who use it. That means getting from a power plant to that socket in your home. So we have these power plants, then transmission lines that bring power over often long distances, and then to smaller lines like you see around your neighborhood, which then eventually come to your home. So are all grids equal or are some better than others? Sure. So the grid's been in a state of transition that we haven't seen in many, many decades. Moving from a model of these large centralized generators, these very massive power plants, to more distributed generation. And that means seeing wind farms and solar farms closer to your homes, on rooftops, all around the country. With that shift towards decentralized power, we actually increase the resilience of the grid because any single outage or fault on the system is less likely to cause a massive power event. So who actually runs the grid day to day? There are some parts of the country where utilities participate in markets, so they're sharing operations over broader re uh, regions. 
There are other parts of the country where utilities are very localized. And then within those different areas, there are also local power, municipal power, and co-ops. So it's basically all over the place. You've got a whole range of different systems or ways of operating. That's right. But there are still some core operating principles, and each region of the grid has to align with these. There's a the National Electric Reliability Corporation and the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission both set standards and check on the reliability of the grid. So a lot of operations have to meet such standards. And that comes into play when we get to especially some of these high-risk events and how to prepare for and prevent those. So what's an example of a high-risk event? Heat waves. So that's when you get to these situations where you're having increased demand on the grid at the same time that you have the increased chance of different pieces of equipment failing. And it's in those situations when you're facing these dueling challenges that you might lose power. And the whole goal is to keep power online 24-7, 365. How robust is the system? I think most people think I flip my switch in my house and the electricity comes on. Is there reserve power just sitting, waiting for these moments of extreme heat? Yeah, there are. And there are reserves at a lot of different levels from, you know, minute by minute to day by day to seasons to on an annual basis. Because the way that the grid is planned is we use different amounts of power over the course of a day, over the course of a year at different seasons, right? So in the middle of summer, you're running your air conditioning In the fall, not so. So electricity load fluctuates. Grid planners are prepared for that. So they look at weather forecasts, for example, and they know how many resources they need to be prepared to have come online at a moment's notice. Some power plants are just ready and waiting right in the wings. Some are take a little bit longer to call on. The newer resources we've been bringing online, things like solar, wind, and batteries can actually respond very quickly to these types of things. In the past, we've relied, and still do, on natural gas power plants, which also some of these power plants can ramp up much faster than traditional coal or nuclear plants. So basically, you're saying that there are plants that are just sitting at the ready. So if a heat wave is forecast, then they get up and running, they fire up and are ready to go? That's right. So there are markets designed for this. A lot of this is based on a day-ahead market where there's a forecast for how much electricity will be needed. These power plants will bid in. And then real-time markets, which are really looking at if they underestimated or overestimated, making those minor adjustments day of. So especially in things like heat waves, there are some power plants that only run a few times a year. That's incredibly inefficient. It's really costly, right? You're keeping these big power plants around, sometimes small, just to be able to meet these peak events. But it's absolutely the case that the grid has historically been designed to serve customers. So to meet demand where it is, if you turn that switch, if you fire up that air conditioner, the grid is there to meet demand. Let's talk a little bit about with renewable energy now gaining momentum, how will solar, wind, battery power change the system? So this system that we've 
historically used and relied upon is incredibly costly and inefficient. As I was saying, we're just keeping these power plants around to meet a few hours, a few days a year. As we pivot to these cleaner resources, especially things like solar plus storage, they can directly replace those natural gas peaker plants. Except not only can they meet those few hours a year, they can contribute year round, which means not only are they much more cost effective, they're also a lot cleaner. One of the challenges with peaker plants is that they're often located in communities. And on high heat days, there is very bad air quality, some of the worst air quality days of the year. And at that same time, you're powering up one whole class of these peaker plants are actually the equivalent of jet engines. So you're bolting a jet engine to the ground and you're firing it up right at these bad air quality days. That's a terrible mix. It's costly and it's bad for public health. So being able to replace those peaker plants with these clean resources that can benefit communities the whole year round, that's the better way to go. And, and the definition of a peaker plant is this plant that just comes on at those times, those few times in the year when needed. That's right. They're That's all targeting called. that peak period of the day. Is being a grid operator a stressful job? I have to imagine. <laughs> uh, you see these pictures of their operating rooms, and they've got screens all over the place. The power grid is the backbone of all our critical services, right? Everything relies on electricity when you follow that thread far enough back. So when the power goes out, it's a real crisis. So one of the most important things operators can do is not only ensure that right the power stays on, that's their number one goal, but they have these remote operations centers, right? They have their own resilience plans just to be sure that they're able to manage outages themselves. As we're recording today, it's quite hot here in the Boston area. That it is. We're having another, I'm not sure it's going to qualify as a heat wave, but a few days of above 90 degree temperatures. How did the grid manage with our last couple of heat waves? Overall, the grid did pretty well. Uh, in a heat wave, the grid is stressed from really two sides. There is the increased electricity use from all these additional air conditioners coming online, fans, refrigerators running harder. But then there's also the stress on the grid components themselves. And that hits every facet of the grid, starting with power plants where these coal plants, nuclear, natural gas, that rely on water for cooling. When water gets warmer, they're less able to cool their systems. And in fact, we've seen in past events, when the water gets too warm, they have to shut down operations entirely. So that's taking some of your most important power plants and taking offline exactly when you need them most. Then you have these transmission lines, which those are the lines that convey electricity long distances they are less efficient in high heat, so they can't carry as much electricity. They also run the risk of sagging as it gets warmer and more electricity comes through them. When they sag, they risk faulting. That can take a line off, then that can stop right the flow of electricity. And if the grid operators aren't carefully managing that situation, it can quickly spiral into a huge event. The 2003 Northeast blackout was an example of that, where just a single line eventually triggered a massive cascading outage event that got 50 million customers across the Northeast. Right. Right. Of course, after the 2003 Northeast blackout, a lot of new standards and operating procedures were put in place that helped protect us from such a thing happening again. So that, that raises another question for me. When something happens en route from power plant to my electric switch, do they know immediately what has happened and where it is? They're getting better at it. 
and better able to quickly reroute electricity so any given challenge with the grid doesn't take the whole thing down. And this is something that grid operators plan for. So it's not just do we have enough power generators to meet peak electricity demand, but also can we meet peak electricity demand if our largest power plant goes down, if a very important transmission line goes down? Can we still manage those outage events? And that's why we still have a lot more resources available than we actually expect to need. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science Podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and all the usual podcast outlets. If you'd like a transcript or links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. So I'm currently doing a push to promote Got Science. So please tell your friends, colleagues, family, that kid selling lemonade on the side of the road about the episodes and topics you like. And if you have a sec, please leave us a review. It's quick and easy. When you open Got Science in your podcast app, Scroll down to the bottom to ratings and reviews and leave a comment. And finally, if you're on Twitter, come talk to us at GotScienceUCS. Now let's get back to our interview. So how do power grids maintain reliability in a heat wave? So this is a multi-step process, starting from long-range planning that spans years out. That's looking at forecasts for how much electricity is anticipated to be on the system needed in those peak events and ensuring that there are enough power generators available to meet that. The power grid is a large interconnected machine and it's running all the time, which means that it needs maintenance. There are parts that need to be replaced. So when it comes to infrastructure planning, Ensuring that these fixes, if, say, a power plant needs to go down for a bit or if a transmission line needs to be replaced, doing that in what we call shoulder seasons, the spring and the fall when less electricity is needed, so there's more slack on the system. Then, though, there's still some maintenance events that require longer periods. So it's staggering those to ensure there aren't too many overlapping, which would preclude the ability to meet peak demand during summer. There's also the case that power equipment fails, right? And you can have these unexpected events and making sure you have enough backup power in place as well as planning for how to mitigate the effects of such an unexpected outage. Then there's forecasting. Weather forecasters are incredibly important to grid operators because they're the ones who say, well, we expect in a couple of days that the weather's going up. And then as that day approaches, that's projecting forecasted demand and then signaling how much electricity will be needed by generators. And then when the actual heat wave arrives, power operators are firing up peaker plants. They are bringing their least used resources online. They're also looking to neighboring regions, which may not also be suffering such high weather, to use electricity from them. And then they're calling on customers themselves to reduce usage. That can be in the form of demand response programs, where, say, an industrial customer doesn't actually need to be running all of their systems at that given time. Or that can be in programs where, say, big box stores turn off every other bank of light, or smart thermostats are 
turned up a degree or two, which, you know, for any given person, not a big change, but across the grid as a whole makes a really big difference. So that's an incredibly important and effective solution. So when they're planning looking out a few years, are grid operators or or managers taking into account climate change or do they do their projections based on, you know, what has happened in the last five years? It's often a retrospective. And one of the ways we've long run up against challenges in that is the fact that energy efficiency standards have been increasingly stringent and really making great strides in reducing electricity use. We've also begun decoupling our general economy from electricity use. So where utilities long planned for steadily increasing use, we've actually been long showing that that use has been dropping off, which all highlights the importance of thinking about all the different elements at play. Because now as we add electric vehicles to the system, as we anticipate changing climate conditions, that also needs to be factored in. Because on the same side as we anticipate extreme heat, there are areas where there will be less of a need for electricity use in the winter. So, Julie, if I gave you a blank slate and said, here's a whole new system that you could develop, what are the first three things you would do? So here's the thing. We don't have a blank slate available to us. And it's really important to reckon with the system that we have. With a blank slate, build a decentralized system where the infrastructure is planning for climate impacts from the start, where foresight is the name of the game, where renewables are integrated fully and completely, and the system is planning for that. But the system that we have today requires a different set of priorities because we have to begin from where we are and build from there. So it sounds like it's like a patchwork. It is. It is. And, you know, a lot of grid infrastructure is intended to last decades and decades. And it's expensive. And it's paid for by ratepayers, right? Your electricity bill, your natural gas bill. So every investment that we make has to be thoughtfully, intentionally built. That's not traditionally been the case. But the more that we know about climate impacts, the more we know we have to factor them in to all climate and to all infrastructure so that it's climate resilient, climate smart. So, Julie, what got you hooked on the electricity grid? Well, I think so much of the electricity grid is where the rubber meets the road for beginning our progress, furthering our progress on climate change. It's a complex system, but affects every facet of everyday life. And it's so important. And these decisions have long been made in closed room. It's very hard to influence the system. And one of the things that I think we really try to do here is ensure that these policies that will affect decisions and investments that will last many decades into the future are thoughtful, are considerate of changing circumstances, and are really in the best interests of people in the environment. The grid is overwhelming. Climate change is overwhelming. It's hard to feel like you can make any difference. Are there things that the average person can do? At every step of the grid, there are challenges that we face and also opportunities that we can take advantage of. Um, And I think especially when it comes to individuals, that comes down to how we use electricity. There are choices we can make 
And then there are choices we do not have the power to make unless broader policies bring them online. And here I'm really thinking about, for example, the energy efficiency of air conditioning equipment. Air conditioners are widely used in the U.S., less widely used globally. But we know that with extreme heat rising from climate change, air conditioner use will be skyrocketing. The single most important thing we can do is make sure that there is a rapid and aggressive set of standards for lowering the energy use of air conditioning systems. That is so important because access to cooling isn't just a matter of comfort, it's health and safety. And it shouldn't be a choice. It shouldn't be up for debate whether people have access to cooling. It's critical. And so making sure that that huge deployment of air conditioners is efficient is so important. But again, that's not something that you or I can do. That's something that, say, in the U.S., that's federal standards that then trickle down to manufacturers and then show up in when, what options we face when we purchase this equipment ourselves. It's also a matter of pushing for policies that help break the cycle we're currently facing. As greenhouse gas emissions increase, the number of extreme heat days we see will rise. And it's also the case that the power sector is a large contributor of greenhouse gases. So we're working actively at the state level, at the federal level, at the local level to try to push for more clean energy every day. This is something that everyone has a say in, right? This is building a grid for the future that we want. And so it's pushing for these policy choices that send us in that direction. So I'm kind of jazzed about the grid now. Excellent. Um, what do you think the best way to bring it up in a conversation, say, you know, I'm having a dinner party and a few friends over without killing the whole, you know, evening? That's right. You know, I think there are a heck of a lot of great digi-knows, but I also worry that my dinner party invitations have been dwindling. Oh, dear. <laughs> so it's all about factoring all of those great, there is progress here. I think the challenges are actually really important to talk about because I think, you know, extreme heat is something that we all feel. And I know that when I'm out walking in this weather, I feel like I'm wilting, right? And yet you go into something like a grocery store and you feel that blast of cold air. And it's hard not to think about how much energy that must be using. And you see all these compressors cycling on, cycling off, building after building after building. This is a big challenge and it's something that's increasing. So how do we tackle that? How do we think about not only do we ensure health and safety, but at the same time, we're bringing more renewables online and we're creating a system that can manage it. So there's some neat things that we haven't talked about in terms of alleviating the pressure that air conditioners put on the system, right? So for example, rooftop solar is generating the most electricity, um, the most power during the middle of the day. As more rooftop solar comes online, we're actually pushing that peak demand lower and later. That eases the stress on the system. In fact, last year during the July 2018 heat wave, it was estimated that rooftop solar in New England over the course of about seven days saved on the order of $20 million just in reduced power prices. So we're making progress. And then we think about these things like these really heavily polluting power plants that are extremely costly that end up trickling through into your power bill, uh, replacing that with solar and storage with these clean energy solutions. That's exciting stuff. That's clean, that's better, that's more cost-effective. Well, Julie, thanks for joining me on the podcast. And I 
will gladly invite you to dinner at my house anytime to talk about the grid. It was a pleasure. And now it's time to lighten the mood with an uplifting science story. Today we're bringing you the third installment of our segment called Science for the Win. Welcome our winning correspondent, Cynthia Duraco. Thanks, Colleen. It's summer. And as I speak, thousands of tourists are either heading to or coming back from East Coast's vacation land, the magnificent state of Maine. When I say Maine, you might think about rocky beaches, lobsters, and Stephen King's small towns full of demonic children and possessed dogs. But it's time to update those associations to include bright sunshine, strong winds, and fresh, clean energy. That's because earlier this summer, Governor Janet Mills signed into law a suite of bills that will reduce carbon emissions, boost renewable energy, create jobs, and fight climate change. I spent a few of my formative years on a farm in rural Maine and still have friends and family members living up north, so I'm especially glad to be sharing this win. Beyond that, there's just something about it that's really special, and that's people power, the power of democracy. Without federal leadership on renewable energy and reducing carbon emissions, people who care about climate change have focused on making progress state by state. If you're a UCS supporter or a longtime listener, you already know that. It's the will of the people in the United States that we act on climate change, including in Maine, where polls show that the majority of residents agree on increasing clean energy and decreasing emissions. In the state legislature, there's been bipartisan support for both. But for eight years, the will of the people was blocked. The former governor opposed investments in clean energy and attempts to scale down emissions for mostly ideological reasons and shut down bill after bill that would have taken steps to address the climate crisis locally. It seemed like there was no hope for Maine, despite an informed and eager populace and state lawmakers who were on board. When you have a leader who repeatedly stands in the way of your progress, you know what they say, you just can't get there from here. But that's the great thing about living in a democracy. When a new pro-clean energy governor was elected in 2018, my colleagues at UCS, working with a diverse coalition of folks, were ready to help guide and advocate for legislation to help Maine regain its national leadership in the fight against climate change. I might just move back. Here's what these new laws are going to achieve. Maine's renewable portfolio standard, the legal minimum for renewable energy sources in its energy mix, is going to double from 40% by 2017 to 80% by 2030. That's the most ambitious target for 2030 in the United States. Next, markets for solar energy will be opened up to all Mainers. That's businesses, homeowners, and even renters, with new policies that remove restrictions on solar access. And finally, a committee has been created to keep Maine on track to reduce its global warming emissions to 80% below 1990 levels by 2050. The benefits of these policies also include improved public health, more jobs, less reliance on imported fossil fuels, and yeah, bragging rights. And there's one more thing that makes this win really special, and that's the swiftness of this progress. For eight long years, many Mainers were stuck and frustrated by their leadership's inaction on climate change. But with just one election in six months from the governor's inauguration to the signing of these bills, Maine has gone from falling behind to leading the way. And that's the way life should be. Great job, Maine. We're wicked proud of you. I'm Cynthia Duraco, and this has been Science for the Win. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. 
Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS, and especially our Partners for the Earth, the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to Stand Up for Science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to Julie McNamara. Science for the Win by Cynthia Duraco. Editing and music by Brian Middleton. Additional editing by Omari Spears. Research and writing by Pamela Worth and Jiayu Liang. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Come find us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, and see you next time.